This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Shirts and Ties is proud to partner with Mike Alpert and Peer Driven PD. Peer Driven PD finds some of the best teachers in the country, films them talking about their tips and techniques that really work in the classroom, and use this content in online courses that your teachers can access anywhere at any time. There are courses for everyone, elementary, secondary, ELA, math, social studies. There's a course taught by a K-1 dual immersion teacher. There are courses featuring performing arts teachers. There's even a goal-setting course taught by an elementary SPED teacher who used to be a Major League Baseball player. It's super inspiring stuff, and Mike and his team really do the legwork finding amazing teachers so you can be sure they're sharing strategies that really impact student learning. So if you'd actually like to hear teachers rave about their PD for a change, check out Peer Driven PD. Request a quote and tell them that Shirts and Ties send you and you'll get 10% off your school subscription for the first year. Mike and his team will also discuss the option of coming to your school and filming some custom courses featuring your own rock star teachers. Check out Peer Driven PD and tell them we sent you. They'll take great care of you and can get you up and running in 24 hours. I don't listen to the show anyway, so it's not going to be taking up my time. <laughs> That's right. Uh, nobody does. <laughs> Welcome to Shirts and Ties, a culture and education podcast. I'm Casey Shirts. And I'm Brian Miller. Brian, my man, what are we talking about today? Parent engagement. I want to talk about parent engagement. Uh, this has come up and a lot of different ways in my building uh, and just in life in general, where parents seem to be the topic of a conversation, whether it be an angry parent that calls in and and really kind of derails a teacher or falsely accuses a teacher, or when we have these discussions of discipline or and, and we say, hey, did you call the parent? And there's a, this void of, I didn't yet. And it's not because the teacher doesn't want to, but it's like this, it's hard. But also, Education, overwhelmingly, anywhere you look, stats, if you want a successful student, if you want a healthy culture of your school, one of the leading components is parent engagement. And um, I was chatting with, she's just a monster in our district. Her name is Jamie McGraw. She's the one of the high school principals here in, the, in my district. She's just fantastic. Uh, and just flippantly, she just kind of had this st- statement of parent-teacher conferences are archaic. They're no longer really needed. And we wonder, especially in the secondary realm, you know, elementary has pretty high attendance. Secondary really struggled to get parents. And she, her, her comment was, like, we, we haven't changed parent-teacher conferences in 20 years, but 20 years ago, they didn't have their plan book online. They didn't have lessons posted online. They didn't have grade book where they got updates of grades. So if that's what parents are getting now, they don't really need a parent-teacher conference if we're still doing it the same way. And so I just, there's a lot that I want to unpack there. When I work with teachers and when we talk about, you know, when's the right time to talk to parents. And one of the things I've advised them is you don't have to call home if a kid misses an assignment or a kid has a failing grade, because that we have a system to communicate that to parents. The grade book is available to them. Now, if they miss multiple assignments and you see a change in behavior. Sure. Well, that's when the call is made because the grade book isn't showing the behaviors. Sure. And then also, of course, if you can, 
call before the behaviors, see if you can reach out and make contact before that to build a positive relationship so that when you need help, you can get it, which I think would be advice for school districts too, but I don't want to get too far ahead of where you're where you're going yeah. with this? Well, here I, I kind of have like an intro of just thoughts that I'd like to just kind of walk through because here's what I don't want to do. Um, I do not in any way want to in my own personal, my own person for my building and my profession, but also in this episode, I don't want it to be this uh, attack in any way on parents that they're not doing their job, right? Because that is not the case in any way. I do strongly feel that there is responsibilities of the school and there's also realities that we can't do anything about. We just need to be creative and and honestly just get dirty of how we're going to wrestle with this. So you and I have talked about it before, but I do believe parents, and I'm going to make statements and I might even intentionally make some egregious statements just to see if you can push back on them and see where we fall uh, in the middle of truth. But I think generically parents are frustrated with schools, public schools. And I think parents are frustrated with schools and it's, and it's all parents. It's your struggling kids and it's your high achieving kids and even and everyone in the middle. Parents just have, I think, an, an underwhelming sense and sometimes an overwhelming sense of frustration with public schools. Do you agree with that statement in general? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And so I want to talk a little bit about potentially why that is and why there's some lack of engagements uh, between schools and parents. And then I, obviously I want to wrestle with some potential solutions. Um, I do believe one of the frustrations parents have with schools, and we talked about this long ago, is that curse of knowledge versus gap of knowledge. That as schools continually grow in in information and kind of very specific language that is geared towards education, that is geared towards pedagogy, that is geared towards assessment, whatever it might be, as we consistently walk a path down academic language, there's a barrier because we live in it. We talk about it. It's so normal to us. And our days are so normal to us that anytime we engage a parent, we forget their last experience in our school was 15, 20 years ago. And it was so different then that we have lost the ability to connect. There's a huge gap between us. We feel like we they know what our schools are like, or we feel like they should know what our schools are like. And they come in thinking that they know what schools are like because they experienced it or they hear from their kids what schools are like. And there's just this massive void in between us. Is that fair enough still? I think that's fair. The other thing that if you go through school as a student, it is a very different experience than going through school as a teacher or an adult. Yes. And I think a lot of adults that I've spent time with, they're like, those things didn't happen when I was a kid. It's like, they did. You just didn't notice because you weren't in charge of the classroom. You were taking care of you. So it's just a different experience. Yeah, that's a good point. So again, I do think it's one of these rare professions that everybody in this world, largely everybody in this world has experienced our profession, lived in our profession. And so there is this thought or belief that they know our profession. I've, I've never been a firefighter. You know, I make fires. I don't like go fight fires. You know, I've never been a doctor or lived in that shoe in any way. So I can't ever relate to them. So I always assume that they know what they're talking about. But everybody has gone through a school system and spent a considerable amount of time in a school system. And so there is hands on knowledge, which what is that phrase where you think, you know, there's like a it's like a law of truth or law of humanity, like when you know a little bit and you think, you know, and but it, what is that called? I don't know. Did we include that in our we hippopotamus did, laws I'm episode? Gonna, I got to look that up. There's like that certain thing that like when you when you know a little bit, you think you know a lot, yeah. right? Whatever that is. 
Okay. I also think, and actually this reminded me of, a, of one of our early episodes that we deleted, this, this parents' right sort of movement, which I would never argue that parents shouldn't have rights. Of course they have rights. Uh, but this, this very strong parents' rights movement has created, uh, and this came out of a Time Magazine article, where parents should have a voice in their kids' education, but we've gone too far. That's, they're kind of arguing that schools have become the battleground political battleground right and so wherever political side you come from you're going to enter school with some pretty strong opinions about what schools should do and schools are caught in the middle and so it's building this frustration and this mistrust because they're coming with these very strong ideologies of the purpose of school and schools have their own parameters that they need to operate under and their own laws they got to operate under and try to be play both sides and so schools are kind of caught in the middle yeah, can I go into that a little bit? Because I think that's... I don't know. We're going to delete the episode because we tried to before, and then you said I don't want that episode aired. So you tell <laughs> that was me. just a that was just a practice episode. That was uh, <laughs> you know. First of all, that statement the the truth of that has always been true about schools. Schools are the place where all walks of society come together, and so anytime we find ourselves struggling, schools do become a battleground. Uh, if you have an opportunity to go back and listen to that Jen Ford episode that we did, she talked a lot about yep. the history of schools being a battleground. Yep. And it was really interesting. And I think what ends up happening then, just generally when societies are struggling, is we look for someone to blame. We scapegoat it. And I, I don't necessarily want to get too much into the list, but there are a lot of things that are occurring in society and people are blaming those things, whether we talk about what's being taught, we talk about um, gender issues, whatever it might be. And so we're looking for excuses for why society's failing and schools end up being one of the places where we have that conversation. You talked about the parents wanting rights. So if you take what always occurs, which is schools become a battleground for politics but then you add into what is currently happening where with social media, with streaming services, people have way more control over what they access and what they get. And I was reading an article and we, we call that unbundling, right? So we're separating out the media we want. Mm -hmm. And somebody described schools as becoming unbundled. And I think that's actually what some of the problem is, is we have parents who want a school that caters to their political yep. beliefs, their specific needs yep. versus, and I'm going to quote Jen Ford here. So they want a school that matches up with their ideology. But Jen Ford said the opposite of that is what we've historically done, which is the orthodoxy of a well-rounded education. Yeah, I don't think schools can cater to individual beliefs. Yeah. Also, I don't even think it's the place of schools to try to meet someone's morals, which I've used that word, I do think it is the place of school to teach the ethics of society. Sure. And I think you're you're getting a little bit ahead, which is fine, but you're hinting at one of the solutions that, that I think we need to have uh, in education. And I'm just going to kind of hint at it a little bit, but it is this little bit of a backbone, right? Like we don't have to cater to your political moral beliefs. We have our own ethics that we're going to follow and we're going to be transparent about them. And so I think that that's partly what education has lost a little bit is because we 
whether out of fear of, of financial ruin or fear of reputation or all the things that we're afraid of, which are good and fine, um, we have begun to to kind of be become the doormat of education or of the our societies because everyone comes in, they kind of wipe their feet on us and say, here's what here's how can you serve me? How can I enter this house and get served in the way that I want to be served and, and get the, my needs met? And what happens is when you decide to cater to everyone, you end up catering to the lowest common denominator. Yep. And here's what I mean. Like that conversation of CRT, we don't need to get into the politics of it, but let's just talk about the general concept of teaching slavery. That, for whatever reason, seemed to be controversial. But as it turns out, I've seen surveys that say 86% of people think teaching about slavery and the truth about slavery in schools is fine. 86%. So why are we considering that 14%? Why do they have so much influence? 86% positive feedback on something, on anything. It's golden. Like you jump in, you get investors. We're all in. 86% of people agree that they want this. Okay. Sign me up. But I'll tell you my last year in the classroom as a history teacher, when we got to that unit, I was a little nervous. And I will tell you, I had adults come into my space questioning what I was doing. Sure. Now, I felt pretty good about it. I, I was able to take a stand, but I'm going to tell you, and that was three years ago that I was still in the classroom and people were asking me some some questions about how I was teaching slavery and why I was teaching it. And it's a minority, but it is, but un- yeah, they are so loud. By the way, Dunning-Kruger effect. That's okay. Thinking of, right. It. So Love the it. idea yeah. that, uh, your own incompetence prevents you from seeing your incompetence, right? Uh, and I'm going to argue that on both sides of parents with with education now, right? Their own incompetence prevents them from seeing their incompetence of understanding what schools are like. But also, and I'm going to get to this a little bit later, our understanding of what parents' lives are like. We understand education life so well that sometimes we forget what it's like to not be in education and to live in in a world that is also radically changed and high demanding. And so we've forgotten that as well. So both sides, I think, suffer from this Dunning-Kruger effect. Should we smile about? Well, I just feel like maybe we should have called the podcast that. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. Mean, but it was good. (laughs) Can we defend parents a little bit here? I want to. That's my, what I'm coming up here soon is all my defense. So keep going. What do you got? Well, Actually, no, this is my episode. I'm going to go yeah. and then you fill in the blanks. What the heck are you okay, doing? Okay, go ahead. She always yeah. hijack my stuff. I sure do. All right. Because I've ahead, tried man. this before and you deleted my episode and now you're you're coming after it again. Can I take... Yeah. No, you can't. Here is my big defense of why I think parents are struggling with schools. Loss of trust. And I radically believe that they have a reason for loss of trust. And here's my some of my examples. And I'm not even blaming schools for these things. Okay. But one of them is school shootings, right? So that's an obvious one. And if you look at kind of like uh, flights, right? So flying is one of the most safest ways to travel. But people are terrified of flying because when they crash, it's devastating and it's horrific. The same of school shootings, right? If you look at the totality of schools and how many kids go to schools and the hours they spend in schools, the minutes of school shootings is a minute. Schools are incredibly safe. However, when they're not, 
they are radically unsafe. And so that narrative becomes very strong and, you know, we're not going to take that chance. And so that strong narrative that we see on the, on TV, that we see um, on social media has created a mistrust in schools. And that's fair. Another area that I think schools have failed is we actually make false promises and not we, sometimes our schools, sometimes our schools do, but even our political leaders do. And I would say when we came out with no child left behind, that was so unfair because someone's going to be left behind. And so all of a sudden we've lost, right? My child was left behind, right? And think of that phrase left behind, right? We left you behind. We kept going and your child was left behind. So when we make these false, when we make these claims, we're going to be all things to all kids. I love that notion. We can't do it, but our, but we say these things. And so when we say them, we build ourselves up for being dishonest. And so people begin to lose trust. Parents begin to lose trust in us. This phrase, whatever it takes, I think it's a great phrase and I will do. Honestly, I think I will do whatever I can to try and help your child, but I will not do whatever it takes truly. Because if I do whatever it takes, sometimes that's going to be at the behest or the danger of something else, or the destruction of something else. So even if I if I say that expectation, I can't follow it, if nothing else, because I'm inf- I'm fallible. And so I'm creating false promises. And then the last one is I, th- I do think this relationship gap, although it's very, very helpful to have these grade books and and, and all these different things online that are easily accessible, it creates a gap of relationships. We're not making those phone calls. We're not seeing them. We're not calling them in. They don't need to come in. They don't need to call a teacher because everything is online. Those are my big things of in defense of teacher or parents of why they mistrust schools. So I'm going to add to that a little bit, if, if that's okay. So your, your idea of false claims, our schools claim we will keep kids safe. We claim that we will prepare them for stability in the future, economic stability primarily. And those are the two things that are probably most important to the parents. And they are two areas where we are struggling. Yes. Either in reality struggling or Or in perception perceived with the safety part though. Everyday kids still come to school and get bullied and mistreated and everyday kids go home and feel bad about it. Now, some of that I think is, is just the challenge of being a child and growing up. But if the schools are not properly helping them, So I think those are legitimate concerns, but also it's a societal issue. Gun violence is an issue in society, and it's something society is trying to figure out, but it's we see it in the schools and we feel less less safe in the schools. The other part about being prepared for the future, education has promised way more than it has given back. Now, this might be even more true about college education, but even K-12 schooling as well. We've made a promise that our students will be succeeding economically, and it's, it just isn't true anymore. And But it's a societal issue, right? The cost of education, college education, the cost of medical care, uh, the cost of housing, of vehicles, all of that has gone up much faster than wages. And if right. people are struggling to make ends meet and they went through the system and the system wasn't good enough, of course they're going to blame it. But again, the, that's what a false promise... And I want you to get back to what you're saying that we have said, if you go to school, you can get an education and you can get whatever you want. You know, you can get a happy life. You can get And it's not true. Yeah. And the last stat that supports the economy is struggling right now is it used to be that the middle class hung on to 62% of the wealth. And, and over the last 
40 years or so, it's down to 42% of the wealth. So we have a, what I think is a middle-class problem. People are struggling and the the most most accessible place to go and place that blame is on schools. And sure. and I don't blame parents for that at all. I don't blame them either. And it's and I it's this strange dichotomy of I applaud the hell out of any educator who walks into this profession because you're doing so with the belief that I can help, right? That's why we walk into this profession. I can help. I can help everyone who comes into my classroom socially emotionally. I can help you relationally and I can help you improve your life. So we're walking into a system saying, I'm gonna commit my life to improving yours. The problem is our system doesn't allow us to improve fully and accurately the promises that we make. Education is intended to help you become a lifelong citizen of pursuing life, liberty, and happiness. And just our educational system alone doesn't allow that because the the problem, like you said, the societal problem, the world problem, whatever it might be, prevents that sometimes, but we're the one who are making the claim that we can fix it. Yeah. Right. And and I love that about us. I love it about us. But it's also, it's one of these areas that causes mistrust. Okay. Can I, Anything else can on I, that? Yeah. I, I have one I want to ask. And I am i don't know if I have a strong opinion. I wonder if, as schools have chosen to include some social, emotional education, if parents have felt like schools have gone beyond what they are supposed to do and have started to encroach on parenting instead of educating. Absolutely. I think that's why you see this pushback of parent right movement, right? Schools are beginning to invade on my rights as a parent. And I think that that is 100% true. I also think it's 100% true that what are we supposed to do? Yeah. When we see kids struggling, when we see a need and for and I'm not blaming that specific parent or parents in general, but just societal needs. Kids are struggling in all components. We're gonna step in and help. Yeah, and I I wish there was a way, and and maybe we'll get to some of these solutions where we could make it clear that really what that training is about is about teaching kids to engage in a healthy society. It isn't that we're trying to parent those kids. It's that this is a place where we have to work with all kinds of different people, and we have to do it in a way that's safe and healthy. And one of the ways that you do that is by showing empathy, right? And yep. so that has to be part of the conversation. Yep. But I yep. wondered if that was a problem. And I feel like maybe it is a little bit. I think it is. I think it's like any, what was a, what was your episode a while ago? Uh, a wicked problem. Uh, wicked you know, problem. Edu- education is a wicked problem. Uh, and, and that's part of it, right? There's these yeah. things that we can't, in isolation, we can't fix them, but they we have eight or nine of them in our school systems. Okay, let me just talk a little bit about lack of engagement. I think this is a, a big one, right? Lack of engagement between parents and teachers. And I found the National Center for Educational Statistics was really fascinating on this. So I have a question for you. Uh, there's two reasons primarily, I think, that teachers don't engage with parents. Give me a guess of what you think they are. I would say one is they feel like it won't do any good. Okay. And then, I don't know. I think sometimes teachers are uncomfortable talking to adults and are more comfortable talking to kids. Okay. You hit one of them. Okay. The other, the, I mean, all, both of what you said is true. Uh, so one of the barriers for staff talking with parents is that they feel, they don't feel trained to talk with angry, angry parents or frustrated yeah. parents. They yeah. have no training on how to handle that pushback parents. 48% perceive that lack of staff training in working with parents. 48% of teachers. 
that's staggering, right? Almost half your teachers aren't going to make a phone call because they don't feel qualified to have a phone call and have a hard conversation. So even before I read this, my uh, my assistant principals and I had a conversation. One of our next step meetings is we're going to talk about this. We're actually going to walk through a training of how to make phone calls, hard phone calls, and give even allowances of like, if they start cursing at you, you can hang up the phone, right? Like giving these permissions. But the number one reason that teachers don't communicate with parents, and you're not going to be shocked by this, you're going to kick yourself for not saying it, is 56% of them said lack of time, right? Mm, they don't yeah. have time to call parents. Yeah. Here's what's interesting, though. Are you ready for this? Here's what's interesting. Do you know the very same reason why parents are not engaging with teachers? Don't have time. 87% of parents say, I don't have time to communicate with my teachers, right? So that to me is a, okay, this thing isn't personal. Everyone needs to calm the heck down because we're not doing it because we don't care. We're not doing it because we don't think that what you're doing is valid. We don't have time. And that is one of the voids I think that educators have towards parents is because although we are busy, we are radically busy. And I will tell you, and I will put my paycheck down that the bulk of teachers are working 60 hour weeks. No problem. They come in early, they stay late, they work on the weekends, they come in over holidays, whatever. However, however, in defense of parents, we are one of the few professions that guarantee your home, unless you choose to, you are home by five o'clock every night. You are home every weekend. You are home on the holidays, right? We're one of the few professions that guarantee that. Now, if you're a quality educator, you don't do that, right? Because you end up staying late, but that's all by choice. Okay. You can even work from home. The bulk of our parents, I believe, don't have that luxury. They don't have that luxury of being home by five o'clock every night. So they are don't have time to, to be with their kids at night. They love their kids. They want to. They want to do all the things that we're saying. We have forgotten what it's like to not be able to be home by five o'clock. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I think anytime that we can have empathy for the people that we're trying to work with, it's absolutely necessary. And we as teachers should appreciate the fact that we know we're home on Christmas, on Thanksgiving, that if we if we want to take a vacation during the summer, we know we have those days. And it is true that I mean, many I of don't, us, you do. I, I Right. Well, you don't. And many of those days we will be working, but if there's a day we need to not, we have that privilege, right? Yep. And that's not true for yep. everybody. And so even if nothing else, I, I feel like that's one of the things that we can be kind of just turn the burner down again, right? Like when you call the parent and they don't call you back or when they're frustrated, let's give some empathy is they just don't have time. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Did you, yeah, he just, I don't know he just stopped working there? <laughs> just <laughs> reboot. Uh, so on this study, a couple of things, they said 48% the teachers aren't engaging with parents was that they're busy. 18% was they don't feel like they are trained in this. And then 9%, which is a pretty low number, but it's still 9%. 9% said that they don't feel safe going to, to school in after hours. Now, when you get into your more uh, urban settings, those numbers increase, which I thought was interesting, right? And it's it makes sense to me. But you get into those urban settings and they radically feel unsafe going to school after school hours. Both sides do. Teachers feel unsafe staying and parents feel unsafe going, which I think is intriguing. Anything else on that that you want to you want to mention on why there's a lack of engagement? Those those were studies I don't of think so. that I thought were pretty intriguing. But then I also want to talk about what is different. What is different from the our parents 
right? So if you're an elementary teacher, your parents are anywhere between like five to 10 years out of being in school, right? They're pretty new. And then I, the older you get, the the longer they're out of school. So what is the what is the largest difference from when our parents were in school to now that is causing some of this disruption? One of the ones I thought about is they're no longer in the dark. Back to our point, like they can see everything online. They get notified online. And so they don't feel this need to go to the schools because on Facebook, they get the post about what's happening. They get the reminds of grades. They get the um, infinite campus of, hey, your kid is missing today. Hey, your kid is, uh, they got a 98 on that math assignment, whatever it is. There is this very easy communication that they don't feel the need to come into the schools to be enlightened. Are you okay with that? Yes. Um, I also think one of the biggest gaps that we are having, and I want to emphasize this kind of heavily, is when parents come in, I want you to think about the last IEP meeting you were in. Was it relational or was it very high academic? Very specific language towards the disability, what we're going to do, laws it's i remember i think i shared this before i remember when i was at like 11 or 12 and i went i had an infection in a finger and it was like really bad because it was winter time so i was always wearing it like hooded sweatshirts and stuff and so the infection actually creeped up my arm and it was really bad like i had veins going up my arm so when i went to the hospital the doctor i couldn't understand a word he was saying he was using very doctorish language talking to my mother but i just started crying because I could sense that it was serious and I could sense that it was heavy. And that has kind of always stuck with me of sometimes when our parents come in and especially our students, when they come in and we talk in a similar way, they don't really understand what's going on, not because they're dumb, but because it's very specific language. And so there's just this weight of fear because they don't know what's going on. I just shared with you because we were talking about communicating with parents. So it was last year, I think some of our staff just talked about struggling calling parents and how uncomfortable they were. So I put together a guide for calling parents. And my second point on that is be professional, but do not use professional jargon. Yeah. Right. And I think that's to your point, which is if we're using all of these acronyms and, and all of yeah. this language that is is understood clearly within this building, yeah. but as soon as you get out, it's just going to be overwhelming and confusing. Yeah. And often parents aren't going to understand what's going on. In fact, we had a a meeting relatively recently, and and since I'm the data guy, I end up on a lot of these meetings. I, I compile stuff and I bring it in, so I'm in on these meetings. And we had a parent who had actually refused services a few years ago, and that was a that was sort of being used against the parent. Hmm. But as I was sitting there, I'm like, here's here's my thing. If if she was sitting there and we were using all this professional language and she was getting overwhelmed and she didn't really understand what was happening and she didn't have trust in the system or the school and, and people are just sliding these papers at her, it would be easy in that moment to kind of be overwhelmed and freak out and say, no, no, I don't, I don't want anything to do with any of this. Right. And so I thought it was pretty unfair that we were sort of holding that against this parent and worse now the child, because no, no. But a few years ago, you refused this. My guess is she just didn't understand why she was refusing because it was probably too much of that jargon. I think, isn't there a statistic? And it, it's not a very alarming statistic, but the fact that there's even any statistic is alarming. Something along the lines of, I'm going to make this up, 7 to 
around there of inmates are in prison simply because they can't read the the form that was sent to them in the mail. They can't read it and make sense of it. So they don't know how to respond. So they have to go to prison because they just didn't understand the lingo, the jargon. And I think that oftentimes we have parents who are getting frustrated and angry with us because they just don't understand our jargon. I'm going to steal. I want you to send me your document, but I'm going to steal that that phrase, right? We're being professional, but we're speaking to our profession in a very disconnected way. That doesn't make sense. And we're getting, we're getting lost. Um, I just want to point out one thing and then I want to go to some solutions. And this to me, like, if I were to ask you, why does parent engagement matter? Why, why are we even talking about this? What would be your answer? Why does this matter? Well, in, in my mind, it, w- it would be to make it clear that these are not oppositional forces, that we are all on the same side and we all want to support the children. And it's going to be best if we do that together. If we're on the same team, we have similar information, same goals. But why does parents' engagement matter? So that they can be part of the solution as a part of being oppositional and part of the problem. And because, which I totally agree with, because overwhelmingly, and you hear your teacher say this, what's the number one criteria for a student's success? Parent engagement. It's parent parent engagement, right? So yeah. you have teachers, I have teachers in my life who have changed my life. And I can call them out, Mr. Palladino, right? They changed my life. And you and I had an episode about that. That Those are moments that maybe gave tweaks, but it's the parent engagement that will radically impact a child's life. So I would like to submit that if that is, and we all collectively say this is the number one area and reason that will indicate a child's success, we don't put enough weight behind figuring out how to fix it. We, we talk about curriculum. We talk about assessment. We talk about all of these things so much. Why are we not wrestling with this so much more if we can all collectively say it's the number one indicator for a child's success? I'll go a step further and say sometimes what we end up doing is dismissing that person as a bad parent and maybe even yes. a bad person. And and that's the end of the conversation and the end yes. of the story. And I think that's incredible. Yes, this unhealthy. child would succeed if this parent, and we're forgetting that and this is part of my solutions. We're forgetting that that is unbelievably unfair and untrue. And we have a responsibility in the same way that we just said we have a responsibility to walk into the social emotional component, because if there's a need, we got to fix it. This is a need that we have to spend more time on. So what can we do? That's what I want to land on here for the next oh, 10, 15 minutes or so. Um, I want to just say this very quickly and easily because we are educators. We believe we can fix everything. We believe there is no wicked problem, that we are going to solve it, right? That's why we walk into education. And so I I wrestled with a a teacher or a fellow colleague this week who last week, she just had a horrific week. And she had a laundry list of some pretty normal events as an educator and as a principal, but compounded in a short amount of time, they were overwhelming. And she, I I just kind of called her and I just was like, I'm just thinking of you. I'm just checking in. And just, she just started bawling. And in the conversation, it came out that it's not her fault, right? She's, it's not her fault that these things happen, essentially. But that doesn't mean she doesn't carry the weight of guilt and that she doesn't carry the weight of of desire to try and help. And so my first and foremost that I, I just want to emphasize to, to you, to me, to everyone listening is it's kind of that serenity's prayer. That's what came to mind, actually, right? Like, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. There is an a, there is an allowance in this of like, there are some things that we just cannot change and that are not our fault when it comes to parent engagement. 
we can do the best we can. We can acknowledge where we're at fault. But there is also just this overwhelming pass of we can't fix this problem. We can do a hell of a lot better, but it's just it's a wicked problem that we can't fully fix. Are you okay with that? Yes. Okay. My biggest component, though, is angry parents. And I want to chat about that. And to your point earlier, I think that they're a minority of our of our population, but they are the loudest. And I think they cause some consternation. And I think that there's uh, some really tangible, easy ways that we can kind of tackle this that might solve the problem. So when you encounter an angry, angry parent, what emotion do you think they are suffering with the most? Anger stems from either guilt or frustration or not knowing what action to take. Those would be my thoughts. I put fear, which I think okay, you kind of sure. hit on a yeah. little bit too, right? Yeah. The underlining current, like rooted emotion is fear. And they're, here's what they're afraid of. When you make the phone call, hey, I want to talk to you about Johnny. couple things. They fear embarrassment. I'm not a good parent. They fear your perception of them. I'm not a good parent. They also fear that they're not a good parent. Yeah. <laughs> right? That my child is failing. My child is suffering this because I'm not a good parent. Right? So they're fearing your assessment of them. They're also failing their perception of, or, or not their perception, but their reality of, am I not a good parent? And they fear for their child. Right? So when you call a parent and they get angry, they're not mad at you. They are afraid. And I'm not saying this is holistically always true, but I feel like the most of the time when I'm engaging angry parents and the ones that are like, so I also want to say like, there's like that percentage that they're just off the wall. Yeah. They curse you out for nothing. You just talk like, I'm, I'm not, those are easy calls to make in some ways because I'm just like, this is, this is craziness. And there's nothing I can even really do here, but it's the ones that get angry and we feel like they're attacking us. I feel like if we can say to my phrase, don't take it personal, make it personal, right? Don't take it personal. You are calling a parent to tell them their child is struggling, failing as a person, whether it be academically or socially, emotionally, and all of those fears creep up instantly. Fear that they aren't enough, fear that they're going to perceive that they're not enough, and fear that their child isn't going to make it. Are you okay with that? I am, yes. And so I think if we can just understand that, how, what's the greatest way, if you have a, a, a fearful, angry parent, what do you think is the greatest way to calm that fear? Because I can tell you what they don't need. They don't need an explanation. Right. Well, so I did end up sharing that document with you on how to call parents. One of the most important concepts in that, I think, is finding a way to make that parent feel valuable. Yes. That's that's what I would do. And in I know that initially that feels abstract and difficult to do, but in my tip, one of the first thing you do to give them value is you ask a simple question such as, hey, do you have time right now? I know your time's valuable. I was hoping I could get a minute. Immediately, if you say the right thing and you're like, listen, I value you. I value who you are. You already have value in this space. You're already working towards a better resolution. I'm already saying, I understand you're busy. I understand yep. that you've got things going on. Another big component to this, and I'm not entirely sure the order. Some of this just comes with, nor like I'm more confident calling a parent now than I ever have been because I call them all the time, right? Yeah. And I'm calling, if the principal is calling, it's rarely because I'm just applauding your child. <laughs> One of the 
I think, skills that we need to wrestle with that is so hard because once they get angry, they start getting accusatory or we feel like it's accusatory of nothing else. And so we want to defend ourselves. We want to defend all the things that we've been doing and all of the ways that we have supported and how they are affecting our class. And the second we get defensive and the second we get in any way like explaining that we're done, they're not going to hear it, right? They're done. We did an exercise with our um, team leaders a couple weeks ago, and it was you had to ask a question, and then you had to honestly sit and listen for three minutes. And it was hard. You wanted to interject. But we discovered, and I discovered this firsthand as I was talking, that when I was allowed to speak for three minutes, I was able to actually like make this circular argument or this circular thought. I was able to get to a point that I don't even remember it other than I just remember talking for three minutes really allowed me to get it out. And the point of it was let people talk for three minutes. They'll talk for three minutes. Most people will. And if we allow an angry parent to talk, even if we just kind of, you know, not the awkward silence, but like, yeah, I hear you or say more, right? Like, I love that phrase, say more. And if you ask it three times, don't give a question, don't give an opinion, ask the question, say more three times. Most of the time, people will exhaust themselves to the point where they don't have any more to say truly, but they will also unbelievably come down off of their emotion because they will have feel heard and they will have gotten it all out. Say more three times. I love that. And that feels like a kind of a psychology strategy. Well, tell me more about that or, yeah, right. And I think it's, it's great to let people work through their own problems because I think that in the end is why that strategy is so helpful because when that parent shows up, we're not going to fix that parent. No. It's still going to be up to that parent no. to figure it out. And if you say, Hey, say more, that parent might work through whatever they're uh, struggling with. By the way, I, I was in a similar activity where we had to speak for three minutes. You may not be surprised to know, just as I'm not surprised to know that you were able to talk for three straight minutes. I couldn't. I said three points and then we sat in silence for the next two minutes. <laughs> I was clear and concise. I, I, I asked worked. for a reset for another three minutes. I was like, I, I'm not even remotely done. Can you keep, <laughs> keep, the, keep the clock? All right. Here's my last one for angry parents. Uh, this is a phrase that we're using this month and I really do. I, I freaking love it. Uh, and my, uh, I sat in on a um, a team meeting. So um, once a week, the the teams, we have teams in our in middle school, the teams get together and they talk about students. And I was able to sit there and just listen uh, to one. And our phrase this month is address behaviors, applaud potential. And I loved hearing them isolating a, a child who was struggling and saying, okay, we're, we, need, we need to address this behavior. What is some positives about this kid that we can really applaud? But they also did it for like there was a phrase that one of my teachers used. She's like, I feel like she's so ignorable. She's so good at just fading away. I really want to applaud this young girl. And I loved hearing that. But when we, and we know this as teachers, every teacher knows this, every administrator knows this, but when you're recalling on a kid, most of the time, you're not sharing anything new. The parent's not going to be shocked. They've heard it all before because they live with it most of the time. Even when they say stuff like that doesn't happen at home, I'd, it might be because, you know, for instance, the other day we, we called a parent and it doesn't happen at home. And then we were asking the kid, what do you do when you go home? Well, from three to 10, they're on their device, right? So of course there's not going to be many behaviors. Um, but that phrase, acknowledge behavior um, or address behavior and applaud the potential. 
it seems so like tricky and kind of like gimmicky, but when you call on a frustrating moment on a kid who's misbehaving consistently and you can spend not the little sandwich, like start with the positive, then go to the negative and then go to the positive. We all understand that phrase, but truly dive into this is what I love about your kid. This is what I see in your kid. You used the phrase a couple of weeks ago. If all we see is the ugly, we're not doing our job. Don't find this low hanging fruit thing to say. Truly like find something personal about this kid. If you saw him interacting with like one of your, like one of your special needs kids in a kind way, man, dive into that sucker and be like, I saw him interacting with this kid and he was so kind and he was, he was, it was such a blessing. And what that tells me is your son actually loves to serve. He loves to help people. He loves to help people who are in need. Like you, you dive into some of those potentials and applauding those potentials. You build the trust with the parent because they understand that you see the whole child. You understand what sees the, you see the positive in them and not just the negative. I think that's great. And I like the detail because the, the, the sandwich thing is, is probably overstated and overused. And if done incorrectly, it can feel insincere. Yep. So if, if what you're saying is, I have this story of this potential that I've seen. I'd a love story. to get Yeah, I'd love to get back to that. Yes. We're not there now. Can you help us get back to that? We've said this before. The problem with negative comments is they're so specific and oftentimes praise is so generic. Tell a specific story of positivity about their child that they can really visualize and hang their hat on. And that means the world to a parent. All right, I got a couple more if you're okay. This is now yeah. just um, so now it's just the engaging of all parents, right? That was like the hard, difficult parents that I think we spend the bulk of our anxieties over. Uh, but this is engaging all parents. And I really do think on this component, I'm going to cheat a little bit because I'm going to say this. We need to reinvent the wheel and it has to absolutely be school by school. I am so tired of these quick pills that people try and sell of we did this and it works. So therefore go do it in your school. And it just freaking doesn't work. It can get a million likes and a million shares on Facebook, but then people try it and it falls flat. And then we get discouraged because we feel like we suck, but you're great. No, it's just that you took a formula that worked for that student body, for that community with that principal's personality, and you imposed it on your own and it just didn't work. So there is this radical, you have to figure it out. So here's my only pill that I'm going to share that I think I'm really excited to walk into this year. And it's just simply a parent info night. Don't bring the solution. Have your parents bring the solution. Bring it in and just be a freaking person, transparent person. Guys, it is so hard to engage. We are disconnected. We love your kids. I think you love our school. We're all wanting the same thing, which is what's best for your kid, but it's not working. You tell us how to improve this. You tell us how we can build this relationship. And you can say like, we have our ideas. Here's what we can do. Here's what we have been doing. We don't feel like it's enough. Have parents do it. How do you prevent that from turning into a political town hall where the loud, obnoxious people just shout out their grievances? You're always going to potentially have that. And I'm sure it will happen. And I think the fear is very, very real. I'm kind of tired of the slippery slope. You and I talked about this last week, right? Uh, cats don't follow lemmings off the cliff was your phrase, I think. Um, I'm not going to make decisions anymore. And I've tried my best not to for years of based on fear. I want to do it based on conviction and what is right. So if you invite this parent info night and you have very clear expectations, guys, listen, if it's going to be something that is like personal, grievance towards the school 
come and talk with me. We will work that out. I want to hear you. And you almost have to like collectively say, guys, we have to collectively agree this is going to be a productive evening towards solution. It's not going to be an airing of grievances. So help me out. I need you to help me out. If it turns into this, your school sucks, whatever, I need you guys to help me out. I'm going to I'm going to stop it and I'm going to like say, hey, let's have a meeting. I need you to collectively agree that this is how we're going to move it. I think those are the moments that we have lost or maybe never had that we as educators, which is scary. And so, again, I'm going to say that this is my personality. I know I'm six foot four and bald. And so when I stand in front of parents, that's very different than somebody else. And I'm aware of that. But you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to do it with with fear, like behind you, like intimidation. I think people generally, and we're not giving enough I think allowance and, and and support to our parents, they want us to succeed. They want our school to succeed because they want their kids to succeed. And so when we go into vulnerable places and say, this is what I want to do. I want to try this thing out. It may fail. I think parents want to applaud that. They want to support us. When their schools are successful, they post the hell out of it on their Facebook pages, right? They want us to succeed. The majority of them. So there's a fear there, but I don't think it's worth feeding. Man, you give me more than three minutes. I can just keep going. I don't know. I don't know what you're doing here. I'm just letting you roll today, man. <laughs> let you do your thing. I do have a couple more thoughts, but I want to make sure you got your uh, your action. I have one more. Okay. So tell me what okay. you got. Okay. So I have a couple of things. I have my last point. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> I'm just gonna sit back for a while. No, what do you got? <laughs> uh, so this one actually builds on what you just said, which is I think it's got to be structured engagement. And a couple of thoughts I have on that. I think if you could get out there and and get a, a high quality survey that is asking the community to reflect on their schools, you would find that 80% of people are satisfied with the school. And then you put that sucker on the billboard because the truth is most, most people are happy with the school. Um, I think we have to be clear. We want the parents to be heard and we even want them to be empowered, but we don't want them to be entitled. Yeah. They, we have, Experts. The school district is filled with experts who will make appropriate decisions for kids. Parents cannot think they are the ones who get to make the decisions for the kids, not within the school, right? They get the parent kids, but they can't be making decisions that will impact other people's kids. I guess that's the clarity I was looking for. And I think to your point, school districts have to do a better job of being strong. It's the it's the children's story. If you give a, a mouse a muffin or whatever it is, uh, it's wait, it's, it's a cookie, but there's give a moose a muffin too, which is the, actually the one I read to my child. But anyway, yeah, I sound like a total idiot. So you're welcome. Uh, or what I tell my own children is love looks like discipline sometimes. And so sometimes with our parents, we have to take a hard stance. And in the end, they are going to appreciate our strength. Okay. You're walking me right into my last point. So thank you. That was great. My last point is this, the phrase that came to my mind was gracious strength, gracious strength, right? Uh, And I do believe that in trying to gain relationships or friends, uh, we've lost our ally, truly, because although it might seem and it is easier to cater to what do you need? What do you need? How can I help? How can I help? You don't trust that and you don't respect that, right? Right. If I walked into a salesman who 
well, yeah, whatever you need, whatever you need. I, I, in some ways, I would be like, what are you selling me, man? Like, this is too easy. Um, so we don't do like this. I'm going to I'm going to put up a front or I'm going to I'm going to flex a little bit just because I can. We do need to have some strength because we are professionals. And so I think when we show that confidence, I think it emboldens our teachers. It emboldens our schools of we know what we're talking about. We're not perfect. We don't know more than you about your child. We're not telling you how to parent everything. When it comes to education, we are professionals and we are experts. And we have laws or expectations, whatever it might be, that we're not going to budge on. We're going to do these things. We're going to be, uh, we're going to persevere. We're going to be respectful. We're going to act with integrity and discipline. We're going to have empathy. And we expect it of you. And when you don't, we're going to say, I'm sorry, you can't come and just berate us like that. Schools have become that kid who will do anything because they are desperate for friends. Yep. And then everybody hangs out with them and they're like, cool, look at all these friends. But when it comes down to it, none of those people are going to be loyal. Yeah. They just they're like kind to of the laugh at, joke. Yeah. They laugh at you. They get you to do whatever they want. You're when you eventually need something, they're not going to give you anything because you were just there to be laughed at, to be made fun of, to yeah. be pushed around. Schools have become that. And that's no good. I think, again, we're talking about the the extremes here. 80% of people, I do believe, trust their schools and they're fine. But even in that, I think they begin to gain more trust and more confidence and even like respect for schools when we are able to say, listen, and generosity and graciousness, this is our strength. We're not bending on this. This is what we believe. I'm going to redefine or, or reword your phrase from a couple weeks ago, your coffee and creamer. Uh, I really, really love that. I think you missed it. And so I'm going to change it. Okay. You can uh, make it better. All right. Uh, babies drink warm milk. Adults add coffee. And I, that's like that. If you have too much sweetness, it's nice. And babies enjoy it. Uh, but once you become an adult, you got to add some coffee. And if all you ever drink is just the creamer, you're just drinking warm milk. You got to add some coffee. Bitter adults. Is that what we're saying? I'm just bitter, strong adults. <laughs> I think you nailed it. There it is. All right. So I have a couple more real quick here, which is uh, I think we should identify the community needs and do as much as we can as a district to show how we're meeting those needs. And then we talked about, and you made this point, which is it's actually the taxpayers that we're largely accountable to, not yep. just parents. And so if there was some way to quantify the value that the district is adding, the economic value, I think that would be a good thing to communicate as well. Yeah. Do you remember the Jen Ford episode? Do you remember how many good phrases she had when talking a to difficult billion. people? Yeah. And that was the other point I wanted to make is I think it would be kind of cool as if as a building you helped, if you identified some of the challenges that the that your staff had and then come up with some phrases they could use. Like one of my favorites, when she said, she was talking about people coming in with these, you know, political challenges that maybe exist elsewhere. And she just said, hey, that's awful. It doesn't happen here. I think it would be helpful when dealing with parents to have some phrases like that at the ready. Yeah. And uh, so we're not going to borrow worry. Yeah. We're not going to borrow fear. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. All right. I'm going to end with one last thing. Sure. We are starting a partnership with this company called Gaping Void. And I've mentioned them before. And they're, they're going to come in. We're going to have some community leaders come in, students, teachers, and we're going to have them help us build a culture wall. So they come in, they kind of listen, they help you kind of work through what are your 
your key points, what are your foundational truths, and then they create. It's not art. Uh, it is an it's an encapsulation of this is what we hold dear. These are some of our values, and they put this, they make a culture wall out of these tiles. I will say their blog that comes out biweekly or a couple times a week is just so freaking good. I get angry. I've actually like quit writing because of it. And why write anything? They're so good. And the last one that they wrote, I just loved. It's called What Samurai Teaches Us About Service. Do you mind if I read a little bit of it? It's yeah, it's go a ahead. couple paragraphs. It's really good. So Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai is known as one of the greatest movie films of all time. It's usually found in most serious film critics' top 10 list. Three hours of pure poetry. They made a remake in 1916 with The Magnificent Seven, but it didn't have nearly the same level of nuance, poignancy, or dazzling cinematography. And yet, for all that artistic mastery, the great message of the movie is not revealed until the final minute of the final scene, which is the real victor of a battle is not the heroes who fight, but the people they serve. The three surviving samurai walk away with nothing, with four of the seven comrades dead. Meanwhile, the villagers they saved from the, bandit, from the bandits are alive and well, singing with joy from the victory. In the final line of the film, the samurai leader says to his two remaining comrades, In the end, we lost this battle too. The victory belongs to the peasants, not to us. And then we see a final shot of their four dead comrades' graves, the latter who you can't help but get emotionally attached to in the last few hours, and we roll credits. It's heartbreaking yet so utterly poignant. And this is what I love about this article. Why? Because anyone who has ever done anything worth a damn knows that they probably weren't the main beneficiaries of their efforts. Our work may live, may have lit up the world, but we still remain down in the mud somehow. And I love that beautiful image. It's not my favorite that knowing we're going to be in the mud, but I love that beautiful image of the credits, the victory goes to the people that we serve. And we serve the taxpayers and we serve our parents. We want to help their children, our future, improve. And so if we truly want to do that, I think engaging parents might be one of the, our next biggest tasks as education, figuring out how to rebuild that trust. And it can't be this top-down thing. It has to be a grassroots thing. Each school has to figure out their identity, their community, and just the transparency of, listen, we believe what's best for your child is that we have a working relationship. How can we fix it? How can we grow it? Let's begin to work together. And you know what? The victor is not going to be us. Who's it going to be? It's the kids. I, I feel like for. there's a bit of a, a theme emerging here, which is we're going to get dirty and muddy and maybe bruised and battered with the goal of keeping others clean and safe. And so I think that's what's happening. Yeah, I love it. So, hey, man, thanks for engaging that conversation. Yeah, you bet. It was fun to listen to you for the last hour. <laughs> well, then you have a lot to take away. So what's your takeaway? Uh, you know, there was, a, there was a lot to take away, but I appreciated the reminder. Nope, I, don't, I have no idea what my takeaway is. You go first. <laughs> I was really <laughs> trying to keep this. You man, I was working because that is perfect. I was trying. I saw so you scanning your papers. I, I, you were like, "What the hell?" I was giving myself a, no. a sentence frame and everything to kind of build on, but it didn't happen. Uh, you didn't talk much, which I appreciated. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> that was your takeaway. 
Yeah. No, a couple of things that I want to take away. I think the one, honestly, from this National Center for Educational Statistics, if we could actually sit down and say one of the reasons why we're not connecting is both sides are saying they don't have time. That to me is a big almost sigh of relief. Like everyone relax. You don't have time. They don't have time. We're crossing hairs. When we do finally make the time, it's because we're squeezing it in on a bathroom break or late at night. Like we're finally connecting when we all have time. And it's just this small increment in our day. So everyone's annoyed. Everyone's frustrated. Everyone's got a million things in their mind. So everybody can just take a big sigh of relief and just say, okay, it's okay. All right. So here's my takeaway. This has been a long episode. So, uh, a last week in preparation for a presentation, I decided to put into an AI image generator, the phrase gap of knowledge, what image would it create? And it actually created an awesome image. So there were the sides were these two walls of books and they reached all the way up to the ceiling. And then there was an aisle and there was a student with a backpack just walking down that aisle. Holy cow. It was awesome, right? Send and, me that image. Yeah, I will. And so at the very beginning, you brought that concept back. And what I picture as we have this conversation about parents is figuring out what are the best ways that we can kind of pull these two sides closer together, just continually trying to shrink that gap of knowledge to the point that we have a common understanding of what is happening in schools and in homes and how we can make sure that we work together for these kids. My favorite is when you have takeaways from things that I have nothing to do with. They're like before the episode on your own, Last I was week. running yesterday and my, and my takeaway is the thoughts that I had by myself. I I'm going to be honest. I napped for about 45 <laughs> minutes there. So. And it, I'll be honest with you. It was you, my favorite episode yet. So thank you loved you. it. Yeah. You're welcome. Hey, man, man. Thanks again. And thank you for letting me talk so damn much. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you. Until next week, do great things. And keep knocking. See you, bud. See ya.